In late 2007, the remains of a young woman from the Casca Nation were discovered in the Yukon woods. I always think about, I want to know what really happened. So I travel north to try to understand what happened and who was involved. It's a pretty big risk to come forward with the information that I have. I'm David Ridgen, and this is Someone Knows Something, Season 8, The Angel Carlet Case. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Dante, Anine, Buju, hello and welcome. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. In 1983, Beatrice Monsignor wrote a book about two sisters, one who embraces her Métis identity, the other who tries to leave it behind. I wanted to show both sides of what it's like. April being able to pass for white and Cheryl who couldn't pass for white. To feel like you're kind of trapped on one side or the other. Forty years later, her seminal novel, In Search of April Raintree, is still a must-read. We share the real-life story that inspired the book. And Winnipeg has a long history of grassroots organizing. Now, Kathy Mallett, one of the city's early leaders, shares stories of struggle, creativity, and fierce dedication. They didn't like the way that we were protesting. They didn't like the way that we were coming down on them, I guess. I mean, I think I made a hell of a lot of enemies at that time, but I figure that if you don't speak the truth, it's like you're lying to yourself too. Exploring 40 years of history in the collection Indigenous Resistance and Development in Winnipeg. Today, two books, one fiction, one fact, that share the resistance and resilience of Indigenous peoples. It's 1983, and a small book about two Métis sisters breaks trail and leads the way for the Indigenous stories to follow. The novel is called In Search of April Raintree, and in it, April and her sister Cheryl are separated by the foster care system. Despite the distance, the sisters remain close, even as they make decisions that will drive them farther apart. Much of their journey mirrored the life of the author, Beatrice Mazinier. And a note to listeners, some of her story includes references to suicide. Beatrice grew up in the child welfare system. In writing the book, she drew from her own memories about how she was treated by that system and by her foster family, the Roys. When she was just 10 years old, Beatrice says she had enough and planned a great escape. We decided to run away because there was four of us foster kids and we were the ones who were having to do all like the cleanup and all that stuff. 
And like the cleaning up was also working in the garden, doing all the weeding and, and things like that too. It wasn't just around the house. It was like they had three sides of, of yard that needed weeding. And plus they had two big lots near the river in church that we had to go. And uh, we were doing all the, the work. So the four of us had decided to run away. Of course, it's January, January in Winnipeg on the Red River. And so we had a, a big map on the, on the wall. My sister Vivian, who is older than me, 10 years old, nine years older than me, she had wanted to be an actress. So I figured she went down to California. So we're going to go and find her in California. <laughs> and so uh, to begin with, I thought the, the river flowed south. You know, the map is this way. You, you'd think the river would go <laughs> south. But it went north. We followed north and we, we well, it didn't really matter because we didn't, we didn't get that far. We only got maybe three, four miles before it got dark. We left in the morning with the toboggan and Mary was the youngest of us at the time. She was like, if I was 10, she was probably seven or eight. She had polio and, and one of her legs was was dead and she had to wear a, a brace up to her hip. And so we pulled her and the toboggan and we tried to make it really warm with lots of, you know, like blankets and stuff. And we pulled her on the in the toboggan. Well, because she's not doing anything, she's getting really cold. And so by the by late afternoon when it started getting dark, she uh, she really wanted to to give it up. And so um, we went to a house across the river on the other side of the river from where we lived. We lived in St. Norbert, so we're on the west side. And we went to a house on the east side, so they had to drive us home all the way around. They had to take a long route because they didn't have that many bridges back then. So I had left the note that we didn't want to be treated treated like slaves anymore and Linda the oldest had decided she didn't want to run away after all so but her job was to give Mrs. Roy the note and uh, because we were missing in winter uh, they called the police and the police were looking for us and was on the radio and things like that and when the police came and talked to us that night when we were driven back home, the police came and they, um, and one, one policeman, and he, he was asking us, why did we run away? And I thought, well, I'm not going to tell him our problems. It's, you know, it was up to Mrs. Roy to tell him, not me. And uh, she never told him, of course. So anyways, we, he, the policeman um, offered to give us his, his dog if we promised not to run away again. And so I said, okay. And I thought, I thought it was going to be a German Shepherd because, you know, a police dog, right? <laughs> well, it was, uh, I don't know, it was just a 
yappy. <laughs> English setter or something, bark, 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 because it had to be, we didn't have fences like all the way around and it had to be tied up and kids are always running around and he's barking, barking, barking. And so, so Mrs. Roy finally uh, sent him back home. So that was the end of that. That's Beatrice Mosnier sharing a pivotal moment from her childhood. And while she was relatively unaffected by saying goodbye to that English setter, her encounter with the police officer would have a lasting impact. Beatrice moved through the rest of her school years, rarely speaking up. She was shy, quiet. But it wasn't long after returning to the Royce that B found that writing was another kind of escape. When I went back class. Well, I made it through grade five, went to grade six, and then one of the teachers there put one of my essays up on the board. He wrote it all out on the blackboard, and it was an essay about a, a lightning storm, and I had just written, you know, it took me about, I don't know, not very long to write it, and uh when he did that, I had no idea. I came back from lunch and it was all up on the board. And and then he was telling the class why it was such a good essay and everything. And that was the first inkling I had, like, a gift kind of thing. I didn't see it as a gift, but it was, oh, I can do something more than just homework stuff, you know? Yeah. Uh, it stood out a little bit. It was something to think about. And then I went to grade seven, and the teacher in grade seven told us that we had to write an essay, and we all had to read it up front, and um, the friend of the class had to read it. And that was the first, like, that we had to do, like, public speaking kind of stuff. That was scary. And I was super shy. But... um, we had, Miss the Roys had like an, an encyclopedia set and they had lots of magazines of all sorts because he was into, he was a carpenter and uh, he had like loads of carpentry kind of books and she'd garden, so they had gardening books and uh, all sorts of different, she, she cooked well and so uh yeah, they had loads of different um, magazines and books for for us kids too. You know, like that came every month, and you read them, and they had like riddles and yeah. things like that. Yeah, yeah, I remember those. <laughs> so I decided I was going to write an essay about totalitarianism, which was really hard for me to say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And being shy, you know, it was going to be really hard for me to say it up front in class. But I, but I challenged myself to that. I, I, I would do that kind of stuff to myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, so anyways, I did that. And I wrote about what that was and everything, you know, like why we should not ever put up with it. And I wasn't like into politics or anything. I just like, well, you know, like I was looking through the encyclopedia and I got the idea from that because I looked at all these different, like what's communism and what's, you know, what's democracy and all that stuff. 
happened then John F. Kennedy came into being the President of the United States. John Fitzgerald Kennedy do solemnly swear. I, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear. That you will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And so that was, that was really important because he made me more interested in politics. And grade eight, we had a, a teacher who was very much, he was a big fan of John F. Kennedy. So he used to uh, talk about him a lot and, and make us do research on, you know, things he was doing. And We observe today not a victory of party, but a celebration of freedom, symbolizing an end as well as a beginning, signifying renewal as well as change. For I have sworn before you... And, and uh, God, I loved reading. I just loved reading. And, and I used to, you know, uh, pretend I was reading my, my workbook or something, but it was actually, there was actually a book there that I was reading, uh, probably about dogs or something, but because I just couldn't put my books down, you know, once I was got into a story, I just had to read it. And so when then did Beatrice pick up that pen finally and start writing? I uh, started writing because of a second suicide in my family. Both of my sisters committed suicide. And Vivian committed suicide in January 1964. And Kathy committed suicide in October 1980. And when she committed suicide, that's when I decided I was going to write a book and try and figure out the answers as to why we went through all this stuff, you know, like it, it, it didn't really bother me in the way, like if people were, were racist towards me or said racist things, well, I'm hard of hearing, so I have no idea that's what <laughs> what they were saying to me. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, so, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> so so I just, you know, was happily living my life uh, in private because I like to be, um, like at the time we had moved to a farm, like my family and I, we had moved to a farm. And I was, of course, older, like in my 30s, I think, by the time I decided to, to write. Because, well, it was, I didn't decide to write on my own. I was kind of like, because of, because of Kathy's suicide. Otherwise, I would not have gotten into writing. Now, of course, as you know, there are uh, a generation of Indigenous writers, myself included, who say um, reading your novel changed their lives and inspired them and empowered them. Us, I suppose I should say. Um, what does that mean to you to, to still hear that to this day? That really makes me wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you <laughs> if you'd like to. <laughs> you tell me. Well, um, when I read your book, I was... Uh, uh, as you as you were a very shy 
uh, skinny kid with braids and glasses who read all the time and lived in the library. Uh, it was hard to find indigenous stories, much less, you know, books written by indigenous women about indigenous experience um, that offered not just tragic pictures and, and, and uh, poverty porn, but also glimmers of hope and reclamation and affirmation and love. So I think a lot of Indigenous writers feel the same way about that book and about you and about your writing. Mm. Well, as you were saying that, one of the things that I that I noticed when I was, well, in my Kennedy years, you know, when I was 13, 14, even younger than that, you know, I heard Martin Luther King Jr. I have a dream. His speech, you know, I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. And I have it hanging on my wall. It was so moving to me and, and all the things that we probably went through but I didn't I didn't see it for myself I I felt the racism and all those things rejection through through following the black people's lives you know there was like Emmett Till Emmett Till, 14, was kidnapped and killed allegedly for wolf whistling at the wife of accused Roy Bryant Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis is the sensation of the boxing world. He's only 21 years old, been fighting professionally less than a year. He's had 22 fights and won them all 18 by knockouts. They call him the Brown Bomber. The Selma Bridge, you know what happened on there? A young man from Marin, Alabama, which was just 30 miles from us, was shot in the back and killed by a state trooper. And Dr. King said, uh, we are going to march to Montgomery. Negro and white students came from Nashville. All those things, you know, I wanted to go down there. And I wanted to to help them. (laughs) They they had these freedom buses going down to Mississippi and Alabama. The ride had become a symbol of the fight against segregation, not only in southern bus terminals, but everywhere. I wanted to to go on there and help. Yeah. And then I knew, I knew I wasn't going to because I was too scared. And the things they went through, it's just horrible. And I always thought we were luckier in the way that our racism was more subtle and hypocritical and, and you know, it was... Uh, People would talk to you and smile at you and things like that. And the minute, you know, you turn to go away, they'd be probably making fun of you and things like that. You just knew what they were really like, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, I, I was aware always of racism, that the kind that's cruel and mean and, and sick. And you don't have any power, but you make your own power. 
and you tell your own jokes. Like when I grew up with my foster sisters, we laughed a lot. We didn't cry a lot. We never talked to each other about what happened to us racially. Mm-hmm. But we joked about other things and we laughed a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Keeping that in mind that, you know, that you took um, what was happening in the United States with 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 black people and then the black experience there. And, you know, we as indigenous writers took from authors like you and your experience in your book. What then is the path that you would like us to take from here? Well, I don't know if you, you noticed my dedication, but I dedicated this work to democracy. And I'm very worried about democracy because it's so fragile. And I did not know that. All my years, you know, like up till, you know, well, until Harper came in, actually, Stephen Harper. It was the first one that made me really worried about our democracy because he was doing like secretive things and he was an exclusive kind of person. And and then, you know, he won his his majority, and so it was the first time that I got worried about it. We started voting, you know, ABC, we call it ABC voting, you know, anything but conservatives. So, but that's, you know, that's because of their what they do, you know. But if, if they get worse, they're going to be like the Republicans, the Trump Republicans. There are good Republicans, and there's also, you know, good conservatives. But when a conservative is in power, I always stop to watch what they're doing and what they're saying and blah, blah, blah. I always have to pay attention to to what's going on. If a liberal or a Democrat is in power, I don't have to worry too much about them. It's not that they're perfect because they can't be. They, they're, they're, they created when their countries, Canada, the States, and Mexico, you know, Turtle Island, when, when the white people came, they're the ones who gave these countries their foundations and their very lousy, lousy foundations. <laughs> you always have to worry about them, you know, when you think about structural racism, systemic racism. Yeah, that's interesting because that's not a path I expected you to to take me down. Why why should Indigenous writers care about these things and write about them? Like, what, what is it that we can change? Well, number one, you can vote. You have the power when you vote. If you don't take that power, you're just giving it to to somebody else who doesn't you know, if you say you love your land and your animals and your like the things that are make you spiritual of you, if you value them, you'll make sure that you vote. And the the important thing is to write. You don't have to write about them. You can write about them if you want to. <laughs> you can work them into your stories or something. You know, but it's really. It's really about, like the book, uh, In Search of April Raintree, is is really about self-empowerment. It's, you know, like you can use it to make yourself more powerful. 
if you want to. When you love your fellow humans, you you want what you think is best for them, right? You you want them to have a good quality of life. You don't have a good quality of life when you're living under oppression. We know that, right? Or if you're colonized or that's not fair and it's just because somebody else did it doesn't mean that we we have to do it. Just that we have to be good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and as uh, In Search of April Rain Tree goes into its fourth decade in the world, teaching a new generation of Indigenous people or non-Indigenous people, you know, kids will read this book, teenagers will read this book, adults will read this book. What is your hope that they learn from from this book this time around? Number one, number one, I hope they get to read the book if they want to. But you know what's going on in the States and Florida and well, through, throughout the States, they're book banning. So that's what happens when you lose your democracy is, is people start doing things like that to you. And, and we're all kids who liked loved books in the libraries. So not going to put up at that, right? That's right. Not Queen Bee. <laughs> thank you so much for your time today, Beatrice. It's always an honor and a privilege to speak with you. Oh, thank you. Beatrice Mausignier is the author of the novel In Search of April Raintree. First published in 1983, it has inspired a generation of Indigenous writers and continues to be a must-read. You're listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Oh boy. <laughs> Canada. Canada. Well, doesn't it derive from Agonigawa? It's village. As Indigenous people, we are used to our stories getting a little twisted. So listen up as we set the record straight. I'm Ganyetio. Please join me as we hear from dozens of Indigenous people. Together, we will decolonize our words and our minds on the Telling Our Twisted Histories podcast. You can find episodes on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. There is a strong history of Indigenous activism in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Many of these grassroots movements have been led by women. Women like Kathy Mallett. Kathy is one of the editors and writers behind Indigenous Resistance and Development in Winnipeg, 1960-2000. The book traces the growth of Indigenous-led groups, including the Mama Wichita Centre, which she helped create in 1984. That organization remains a staple in the city, delivering community-based services rooted in its Anishinaabe name, which means we all work together to help one another. Kathy set out to change the child welfare system. She wanted it to include instead of exclude Indigenous participation in decision-making. Kathy is a longtime champion of Indigenous rights and is a member of the Order of Manitoba. Kathy, welcome to Unreserved. 
Thank you for having me. Now, Mama Way has uh, name recognition in Winnipeg. Uh, its growth as an organization has had huge impacts on the way Indigenous families are supported, particularly in and around the inner city and North End. But for those who may not have heard of it, how would you describe Mama Tata Centre? I would probably say that uh, the Mama Wichita Centre is a program that looks at the holistic uh, family. It's very family-oriented and very family-centered programming. It's a well-oiled machine. It's the um, the grandmother of the Indigenous organizations in Winnipeg. Uh, I think one of the things that for us when we were looking at developing the Mama Wichita Centre was that uh, that it wouldn't be around so long because, you know, our families would get stronger and uh, our families wouldn't need a support system like the Mama Wichita Centre, but lo and behold, it's still here and it's still important to to all of our people. Mm-hmm. Why was it important for you to build a, a centre coming from a cultural and holistic viewpoint? Well, you know, at the time, there was many, many of our families were experiencing trouble with the Children's Aid Society. A lot of our children were being taken into care, and uh, but back then... Uh, we were even hearing about children that were being adopted outside mm. of Manitoba and even outside of our country. And when we were wanting to look at our service, we wanted to make sure that uh, it reflected who we were as an Indigenous people and not to mimic the white system of the child welfare system as it was then because it certainly wasn't working for our families. And I don't know, I don't think it's working for a lot of families. Mm. Um, I remember when I moved here and and we met, of course, you know, having been in the same sort of circles and community mm-hmm. circles. You were a tough lady back then. Um, how <laughs> you did had you, to be. You had to be. <laughs> exactly. So what, what what kinds of obstacles did you and, and your team face in trying to create a holistic, culturally centered place for Indigenous people? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, basically I worked with a lot of women, a lot of our own women, our Indigenous women at that time. And um, I remember one time, you know, when we were building our housing co-op, which is on Belmoral Street now, where uh, we would go and meet the government people. And, of course, they're basically men, white men with bureaucrats and and just totally... uh, nothing but government sort of policies in mind. And and they would be talking to our architects who were white guys, you know. So I, I just got so tired of that. I finally said to them, look, this is our housing project. It's not theirs. Mm-hmm. It's ours. You talk to us, you know. So it's like you have to constantly remind these people of who we are. And we got to stand our ground, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Mama Way was created in 1984. Correct. Yeah. Um, can you describe the resistance movement of Indigenous people at that time? Uh, I would definitely say it was probably one of the most exciting decades for me in the 80s and into the early 90s, especially uh, with our work in the child welfare activities there. There was a lot of resistance in terms of even trying to get the support of our own men 
That was another big obstacle, Mm -hmm. especially when these people are chiefs of their reserves and they are talking about the rural area and the and the services that they're providing. They were just taking over their own child welfare system at that time yeah. as well. And they were wanting to know, oh, who are these people in the city? What right do they have to talk about child welfare? And, and I'm going, but I don't see you guys doing anything about it. I don't see you guys on the front line here. Hello. You know, like, <laughs> you know. And it was that... Not only the resistance in that whole way of looking at developing services, but just to make people more accountable, Mm -hmm. whether it was government people, whether it was our own programs at the time or services, you know, it was was tough. Mm -hmm. In fact, you were sued by a a certain chief who we will not name um, for asking questions. Yeah, I made a statement in the newspaper about the mysterious deaths of children. Mm-hmm. which was happening. Yeah, and so he picked on me, decided he'd sue me. Anyways, he had to drop the lawsuit because he just didn't have a leg to stand on. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're, ta- when you're telling the truth, the truth prevails, eh? Yeah. And why is it so important for, or was it or is it important for you to, to give voice to these children in, in the child welfare system? Well, because, you know, the families that were in that system my God, they they needed so much support and so much advocacy. And I remember going to a meeting with a family to help and advocate. And I can tell you the people in in the child welfare system were like, they were so resistant to us even being there. They wanted no support person coming with their families. They would try to make sure we were not to go in the, these rooms with the families, mm. you know, but no way. There no way that we were going to get pushed out at that time. I think we were trying to be reasonable. I don't think we were demanding too much of something that couldn't be delivered, mm. but they didn't like the way that we were protesting. They didn't like the way that we were coming down on them, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I made a hell of a lot of enemies at that time, but I figure that if you don't speak the truth, it's like you're lying to yourself too. Yeah. You know? And on the other side of that table, of course, were Indigenous families, and this is the 80s. Mm-hmm. What, what was a typical family that you would have had to deal with back then and advocate for? You know, we, we decided to have a conference, a, like a, a gathering that we had at the Friendship Center, and this is where we had the opportunity to invite families to come and, and just talk. Uh, talk about what was happening with them and what kind of services they needed. And it was that at that conference that led to our piling onto a city bus and going down to the Children's Aid Society's annual general meeting down at this fancy hotel near the airport. Because we were, we had, we had formed a coalition at that time. We started lobbying the government. We started uh, having meetings with Children's Aid Society people, and we had demanded that we wanted at least a couple of seats on their board of directors. They said, "We're only going to give you two seats." So we thought, "Okay, we'll play along with you then. We'll have two of our members from the coalition. We'll come down to your AGM, 
which we did. Mm-hmm. We loaded a whole bunch of our people onto the bus and off we went to the hotel. And I guess somebody at the Children's Aid Society got wind of us coming. So when we got down there, they had a whole bunch of cop cars surrounding the hotel. The public relations guy comes running over to me and he says, Kathy, Kathy, look, I've got some seats for your people. You can sit over here, you can sit over there. I said, no, no, it's okay. We have lunch with us, and we're going to go sit in the back of the room. We'll be fine. There must have been about 70 of us there with these brown bag lunches that we'd gotten from the Native Women's Transition Centre. And the media, of course, is there. And uh, two of our member coalition women were the ones that were going to go up to the podium and denounce the Children's Aid Society, which they did. It made national news because when they denounced the Children's Aid Society, all of us just rooted, yelled in the back of the room. You could just hear us yelling. (laughs) And uh, the news, the camera people were showing our bag lunches and the people that were eating their nice veal cutlets. (laughs) (laughs) It was quite a... Like today, I can laugh about it now, but back then it was not very funny. Not very all. funny. Not funny at and all. And who are these people? These are mothers, fathers, aunts, yeah. uncles. Yeah, yeah, just all family members. And stories that were coming through our conference, that gathering that we had, was that the, their kids were taken away. They've never seen them before. Never saw them. They just were taken from them, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they didn't know why. They didn't know anything about what was going on. And how common was that then for, it was very for common. you know, child welfare to come and take your kid, never see them again? Yeah. Very it was common. very common. Yeah. Well, when I retell that story, I'm going to tell people you kicked the door down. <laughs> yeah, well, we actually just pushed it open and it just kind of flew <laughs> open. Kathy Mallet. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. My guest today is organizer, activist, and author, Kathy Mallett. Now, in May 1982, the Winnipeg Free Press reported a story that really changed things for you. Mm. It was about an Indigenous child who died while right. in the care of child welfare which during that time happened a lot. Mm. Um, What was it about this story in particular that changed things for you? Well, um, when we heard, our coalition, when we heard that this young baby had died in the foster home, we had meetings with the Children's Aid Society. We wanted to know why. And the parents wanted to know why. And we never got those answers. Mm. So it was that, that, that particular incident that really spurred our coalition on. And I've seen it too many times where a death seems to, to do that. You know, it, it seems to spur on the, uh, the motivation for people to do something. So it, 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 it was sad. I remember doing an interview and my mind just went blank because I, I, I just didn't know what to say, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to s- say anything in mm-hmm. those kinds of situations. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but you've never been afraid to speak up for Indigenous children. In 1991, you were sued, as we said. Mm-hmm. Um, where did you or do you find the strength to speak out against the patriarchy or authority or the bureaucracy in this way? 
I think I learned a lot from my own mother. She was a, a widow when she came into the city from her reserve and came to work here and you know, during wartime, World War II. And she was always speaking out against racism. She wouldn't let things go by. So really, I get that from her. And I also get it from my dad. I mean, my dad was a World War II veteran. Came back, survived <laughs> World War II. And, and uh, you know, and he went through his struggles too. Mm. So I think that's where my strength comes from. And also from the other women that I worked with. I would say the majority of uh, the women I worked with were also single parents raising children. Uh, and, Interesting. Uh, yeah, and so, yeah. And so we were comrades, you know, and we worked together, and we worked together well. Yeah. Why do you think so many um, Indigenous-led resistance or organizations or this coming together of community is led by women? Most recently, the Idle No More, mm. many of our organizations are led by yeah. women. The yeah. Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Two-Spirit yeah. movement was really led mm-hmm. by women. Mm-hmm. What, where does that come from, do you think? Well, I think it's because back in the day, we didn't have our any kind of a political organizations that represented us as women. Mm. And I also think that because we're the ones that that take care of the children, we're responsible for our kids, we're responsible for our elders, we're responsible for the well-being of our families, of our community, and it it comes from that. It's just a given that we should be there helping out however we can. I just think it's always been there through our ancestors, it's always been there. I mean... I just think back about my own family, how my great-great-grandmothers, how they took care of the family amongst even the poverty that our people lived in. You know, they they just were there for their family. Mm, digging up roots. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Making bannock out of nothing. <laughs> Ripping it in half. <laughs> now we got enough. Yeah, yeah. Now, the book Indigenous Resistance and Development in Winnipeg documents other organizations and movements, including the creation of the Indigenous Women's Collective of Manitoba Mm. and the growth of the Two-Spirit LGBTQ movement. Why was it important to record those histories in in this collection? Well, the women's stories, I think they're just now coming to be in books and in print, you know, and... Also with our two-spirited community, it's the same thing. The stories have never been really uh, talked about much. And I think it's high time that our stories are coming out. Yeah. Yeah, for we sure. We certainly haven't heard, uh, you know, the two-spirit community uh, for too long as, you know, even in our own yes. communities. Yeah, yeah, We were, sure. you know, shunned. So yeah. absolutely important to mm-hmm. include that in the history. Mm-hmm. For sure. What does the history of Indigenous resistance, uh, or what role, rather, does the this idea of resistance play in what's happening in Winnipeg right now? Mm. Well, <laughs> you know, it's like... Um, We're like ground zero right now. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. You know, as a senior, as a... An a retired, elder, shall I say? <laughs> <laughs> shall I say it? <laughs> you know, we're still in the struggle. The struggle will always be there until... Society, the white society, can own up to what's happened to our people through the residential school system, through the land loss, you know, and uh, our voices will only get stronger. And I really uh, praise the young people that are there today who are still speaking out 
and still speaking the truth. Can't go wrong when you're talking the truth. And that's what those young people are saying. This is what's happened to my family, and these are the solutions. And that's the thing about our struggle, is that we have solutions. Mm -hmm. Mm. It's still really tough to be Indigenous in Winnipeg and probably in many urban Mm -hmm. centres. Um, our people are still going to jail in, in yeah. large numbers. Our, our children, they're homeless people. That, that uh, community is growing. Um, our children are still being taken in in mm-hmm. huge numbers, and our women are still going missing and yep. being murdered. Yep. There's a fire burning at Camp Mercedes right now mm-hmm. in Camp Morgan. Um, people gather there daily to to, to show support. Uh, for those women mm-hmm. and for those families. And many of those stories that they share um, are tied to the child welfare system. Yep. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm shaking my head here thinking how they, these are all connected, right? Yep. These are all connected. all connected. What will yep. it take, do you think, to, to break that, that circle, make that change to the systems that continue to hurt our Indigenous families? Our solution in the 80s was to develop our own systems our own organizations, our own services, to hire our own people to work with our families and to to look at their strengths as a family, not at the deficits, but at the the gifts that our families have. And until we, uh, I think until we, uh, even the child welfare on reserves and in the Métis communities, until they can get the control of the the money that that needs to be used in in developing all kinds of programming and wraparound services for our people but i i I think i i think with our young people there's a lot of hope there's there has to be a light on that tunnel and uh, i think with each decade goes by it'll come it's an ongoing ongoing struggle but it's got to only hopefully get stronger for us. Yeah. And and to those young people who are still on the front lines from mm-hmm. BC to, you know, all across Turtle Island, protecting their land, protecting their mm-hmm. water, protecting their yep. children, protecting their women, protecting, right. protecting, protecting. Yep. Uh, in the struggle, what what advice would you would you give them if they're feeling a little tired and they're feeling like, man, nothing is changing? I know. It can get pretty down. <laughs> you, can get, you can get pretty depressed if you think about it more often. Mm. I, I sort of get anxiety sometimes, eh? And so, you know, like, I usually go to my smudge, and I smudge, and I pray. Hmm. Just to let you know, too, that uh, there's going to be a class at the University of Winnipeg, Urban Studies, it's called, and uh, that class is going to use this book. Uh, but, uh, you know, as time is, is going by, a lot of our older guys have been, you know, have passed away. Uh, you know, they're... We're all getting aged. <laughs> We're all getting older. So it's really important for us to share those stories with the young people. And I think that it hopefully it'll, it'll help them how to uh, maybe learn how to do a little more organizing, mm-hmm. you know, and also to take care of themselves in the spiritual sense, in that spiritual way. We do have access to our sweat lodges and, and to our elders and that. So that'll give us that strength that we need as well. Kathy, thank you so much for spending time with me today. So nice to catch up with you. Watch. (laughs) Throw my fist up for (laughs) you. Me too. 
Kathy Mallett is a member of Fisher River Cree Nation. She is an activist, a member of the Order of Manitoba, and along with Shauna McKinnon, the editor of Indigenous Resistance and Development in Winnipeg, 1960-2000. to That's almost all our time this week on Radio Indigenous. But before we go, I want to leave you with a little more love for Beatrice Mazinier. She was in Winnipeg in the fall to attend a book signing at McNally Robinson, and people of all ages lined up to greet her. So it's just like treaty payments all over again. It is holy. <laughs> this winds all the way around the store. This is done in September 29 of 23. Best wishes. Perfect. Thank you. Hello. How are you? Um, I first read your book in 1983 when I was 12. <laughs> and I really grieved Cheryl for a long time. It was just so impactful. There was like so many elements of Cheryl and April that resonated with me as a young Indigenous girl in the 80s. Yeah, a lot of people told me I had written their stories. Hello. Well, I first started this book in junior high and then I got the 25th anniversary copy. <laughs> and here we are now. <laughs> Time flies. It does, unfortunately. This is for somebody I might give to because I'm a teacher, so I might give it to a future student. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. This is my favorite book, actually like of all time and this is my baby and I was just telling him about it today and I was like this has to be like one of the books that you read at least once in your life and can I just get a quick picture with you Everybody wants to rule the world. That is one of the rulers of the literary world, Beatrice Mazinier, signing copies of her novel In Search of April Raintree, which just turned 40 years old. You can find more content related to the book on our website, including an interview on the book from 2016. And of course, we're always playing on the CBC Listen app. This episode was produced by Kim Kasher, Zoe Tennant, Laura Bone-Steubing, Rhiannon Johnson, and Aisha Smith-Bogaba. I'm your favorite cousin, Rosanna Deerchild, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty 1 territory. Gnaskanamitanawa, I will say. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.